and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we have on White House correspondent Philip Wegman, who is going to give us all the info of what it's like to cover the president and his administration. We're going to get into Phil's journey to get to this level in his career, the do's and don'ts in a White House press briefing, and what it was like when the president of the United States chided him for a question that he asked on national TV. For those interested in a career in journalism or just want to know what it's like behind the scenes and the dance that reporters have with the White House, this episode is for you. As we bring him on a little bit more about Phil, Philip Wegman is the White House correspondent for Real Clear Politics. He previously wrote for the Washington Examiner and has done investigative reporting on congressional corruption and institutional malfeasance. Thank you so much for being here, Phil. We appreciate it. Beverly, thank you so much for having me. Now, we have known each other for a while. I don't want to even <laughs> think about how many years we've known each other, but I remember having a conversation with you probably a decade ago about just your career and the direction you wanted to go. I was curious, did you always want to be a reporter growing up? Was that your dream job? Well, first of all, this is double jeopardy for me because not only are we having a discussion about uh, journalism and my day job, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about all of the... Uh, the tips that you gave me as I was trying to figure TV out. And I'm, I'm hoping that I don't break any of the rules that, that you gave me. You're doing me. great. I see you on the so, old Caguto all the time. Oh, so you're doing go. fantastic. Yes. Um, so as far as journalism goes, uh, I'll be really honest with you. I got into reporting because I got lost on my way to law school. This is not something that was always the plan. I think that I took a grand total of two journalism classes in school. Never wrote for the college paper. I wish I did. But um, barriers to entry with uh, the proliferation of a lot of internet news websites uh, has made um, it easy to get into this field. Uh, it's more difficult to succeed, but it's, uh, it's easier to get your feet planted. And I've just been very blessed uh, to have worked, you know, not only for some great publications, but also to have um, some really great editors uh, like Tim Carney at the Washington Examiner or Carl Cannon, my current uh, Bureau Chief at Real Clear Politics um, to not only help me, you know, with with the day to day, but really invest and uh, try and encourage me to, you know, always get to the next level because uh, there's so many stories and you want to execute all of them and you want to be the best. It's funny. One of the things I've heard in, in chatting with people over the years here in D.C., when they don't know what to do next, they say, maybe I'll go to law school. And I always <laughs> say, well, that's a, an expensive detour if you're not quite sure where you're headed. There, there are a lot of lawyers. My advice was always make sure you want to study law and practice law if you are going to get a law degree because of the time and money. But I agree with you. I think the path to journalism can be really varied. It, I did have a radio and television broadcasting degree, so I did study it, but I never thought I'd own my own business, never thought I'd go to DC, do media training, all the things that I'm doing. I find that the, that that uh, occupation of media, it's a lot about working hard, mastering a craft on the job, and just knowing the right people. Did you find that to be the case as you moved up and moved to different outlets? I certainly did. And the way I think of it more and more is when it comes to journalism, yes, you can uh, go get the degree. And that's very helpful to learn more and more about the theory and the nuts and bolts. But journalism is one of these things that you really do learn by practicing. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's a trade. I think a lot of people in the uh, news business, they like to romanticize and they like to try and bring a more scientific lens to this. But at the end of the day, um, 
The job can be broken down into those very simple questions of who, what, when, where, and why. And it's journalism. It's the news. Uh, new information is the currency. And whoever gets there first, the fastest, and, and tells the best story, more often than not, they win. And for you, how important has having a presence on Twitter, going on TV to talk about your work, how has that also bolstered your career? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because a lot of times reporters are addicted to Twitter and it makes sense, right? Because um, if something is going to appear on television, it is going to appear in print first and probably the fastest way other than visiting the, visiting the uh, Real Clear Politics uh, home website to, to find uh, what is in the news and what is most important and driving uh, the news cycle is probably Twitter. You're going to hear from you know, politicians, from other journalists, from sources. Uh, it is a good aggregator of things in the moment, uh, but it can also be uh, very myopic. And I think people in our industry learned the hard way that uh, the narratives on Twitter, um, especially going into the 2016 election, uh, they all made a lot of sense online, but when they were tested against the real world, they kind of fell apart. And so you had a lot of reporters who were suddenly questioning whether or not they lived inside of a bubble. And there were, I think, some good faith efforts to get outside of that bubble uh, after the 2016 election. But um, I think a lot of people in our industry remain very addicted to Twitter. So it's it's an evil, but maybe a necessary evil. I think that for all journalists, it's something that you probably have to have. Um, but, uh, you know, in addition to Twitter, it, it's, you know, in addition to its vices, it, it does have some virtues and that it helps you get your work out there. And, and television, I think, more than anything, um, is kind of just an accreditation, right? If, if you do good work in print as a print journalist, um, sometimes your, your colleagues uh, at the networks will will invite you on to uh, to give analysis and um, more than anything I think it's uh, it's just a, a bit of a attaboy there exactly I want to get into what is a, a typical day for you I know many people have jobs that are nine to five but breaking news can happen all the time what is a typical day like for you when you start I guess meet with your editors figure out what stories you're covering going to the White House for a press briefing, let's say, what is a typical day or really is every day different? Well, Beverly, remember in college when your professors would say, you're not going to be able to finish this assignment if you do it at the last minute, or you're not going to do well on this test if you cram. Um, In a way, all of those things that uh, our teachers and professors uh, told us when we were younger about cramming, about waiting to the last minute, um, In journalism, those things are kind of turned on their head because you don't exactly have the option. Sometimes you do uh, have the opportunity to take, you know, two, three days to prepare for one interview. But sometimes uh, it's the nature of the beast and the news cycle uh, demands that you be ready at the uh, drop of a hat. And so it's like studying and cramming for a final exam. But, uh, you know, rather than, than a grade, um, you you produce a paper and uh, the test continues until you know you either uh, get fired or poached by a bigger outlet or you retire. It's it's um it's really thrilling. It's a lot of fun. Um, structure is helpful uh, in that you know you want to start out your day by reading absolutely everything across the spectrum, uh, whether that's the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. Um, you want to have a good fluency 
in not just uh, what is likely to happen, but what has already happened. So that when you go to talk to your sources, um, you're very much on the same page and you can have an, an informed discussion about um, generally anything uh, at any point and, and keep that conversation going so that um, you can figure out what it is that you know and then what it is that you don't know and, and try and, and pursue that. And um, it really is, uh, it's like nothing else in the world. It's, um, it's incredibly frustrating at times, but it's also so much fun. Do you find that you have to hold to plans loosely with family and friends because you never know when that news story is going to break or there's going to be a source you need to speak to? And is your family and are your friends typically pretty understanding of that? Uh, I think that they're pretty understanding. Um, just last weekend, uh, I had to cancel on some friends for a um, you know barbecue that we were going to do at the last minute uh, just because of you know the, the former president was speaking here in town. Um, there are things that you can definitely do uh, to plan out, you know, days and weeks in advance. But sometimes, um, you know, part of journalism is that, you know, you're living your life second to other people. The, the news business requires other people oftentimes to make news, to do something. And um, you follow up after the fact and, and report to the, the public what has happened. And so I think that, you know, you, you can definitely set up guardrails you you can um build in some flexibility but um especially when you're young and especially when you haven't um established yourself you need to be willing to hustle you need to be willing to say i see your nine to five and i'm gonna turn that into my own six to nine um you need to put in the extra work and i think back to some of the stories that I'm most proud of at the Washington Examiner, whether that was investigations into um, you know, a, a member of Congress who was later censured as a result of, of our reporting, or whether it was you know, some of these um, Senate candidates who we, who we helped put the, uh, the nail in the coffin of. Um, the, the work that I did, yes, you know, I, I was working on those stories at the office, but I was writing those stories more often than not when the day was over. Right. Um, you, you have to put in a lot of extra effort, uh, especially when you're young, because again, you learn by doing. And um, that was something that um, I wasn't ready for initially uh, when I started this, uh, this, this crazy <laughs> journalism experience. Um, but you, you pick up speed, you, you, you pick up some tips and tricks along the way. Um, but for anyone starting out, uh, yeah, expect to put in the extra uh, work. And I think that uh, over the long term, you, you, you'll be rewarded for it. I find that there is a rhythm to most things we do in life, especially in writing. I even find that for myself, there's a rhythm in speaking. And I find this, I found it very strange when COVID first hit and everything shut down and I didn't really have any clients for a couple months. So I just didn't speak for a couple months in my normal day to day as I would in my job. I was so rusty even after two months, which completely surprised me because here I've spoken for years, public speaking, media interviews, all of this. And I didn't realize how much the day-to-day of just doing something prepares you for that next day. Do you find, looking back at your writing a decade ago to now, I'm sure you see a, a huge amount of growth in your writing and it's become a rhythm for you that you've really mastered this practice and will continue to as you write more. 
Yeah, the, the goal is always continual uh, improvement. I'm really curious about uh, the pandemic because I think that in some ways there was a lot of flexibility for writers and reporters to roll out of bed and rather than commuting to the office just to grab that cup of coffee and get to work at the kitchen table. Um, certainly, uh, I've, I've you know taken advantage of, of some of the uh, work from home benefits, but I think that there are also costs. Uh, I think back to um, the newsrooms that I've worked in, and so often uh, some of the benefits, um, some of the the best stories that I've pursued have been the result of, of just talking with with other colleagues of of you know um, you know maybe heated disagreements or arguments or just uh, idle gossip that then sort of gets the ball rolling, and so I'm really interested in the rhythms uh, that that you referenced because you know, there was a rhythm that we all sort of developed um, during the uh, lockdowns. And I think that there were some benefits, maybe, you know, uh, you know, an hour or two extra uh, of working when we didn't have to commute. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward, um, you know, in the years to come to seeing if uh, maybe, you know, maybe the return to the office, um, you know, full time completely uh, has, has, uh, you know, its own benefits. I, I, I just, I think the the loss of the newsroom, um, even now, you know, a lot of outlets are struggling to bring reporters back into a physical newsroom. Um, not to sound too uh, too crotchety or, or too nostalgic, but I, I'm afraid that we, we might lose that and, and yeah. lose some advantages to it. Well, we lose, I think we lose the advantage of learning from other people. And that's what you alluded to there. It's important to talk with other people and, and see what they've been hearing, what their sources have been in order to help you write a better story. And and with your writing, there's obviously talking to people, interviewing people, but sometimes with your job, you are asking questions of pretty high-level people on camera. I remember one moment specifically, it was during the pandemic, it was the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's inauguration, and you asked him a question on live TV that he didn't like very much. You asked him if invoking white supremacists like Bull Connor and George Wallace and saying those who didn't support voting rights legislation were in the same camp. He told you that you need to go back and read what he said. He raised his voice quite a bit. I was watching this live when it happened. Take me back to that moment. What was it like to be chided by the president of the United States? <laughs> well, the uh, the funny thing about that was that he implied that I got into journalism um, because I like to read and write. And I think the insinuation was that uh, I perhaps not, might not be very good at, at reading uh, the truth is, I did get into journalism because I like to read and write. And I got into journalism because uh, after four years of college, that was probably the only tangible skill that I had. So, um, you know, I, I laughed a little bit about that. Um, and uh, I couldn't help but but um, sort of recall that uh, President Biden is not the first president who has publicly lost his temper with me. Uh, Donald Trump did not like my question about his uh, allegation that that uh, pandemic COVID supplies were being sold by some of these hospitals. And um, you know, he, he got pretty uh, ruffled with me in the Rose Garden. But um, it's one of these things that you're not prepared for, because obviously, as journalists, our job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and do everything that we can to get to uh, the truth as quickly as possible. But nothing will prepare you for the leader of the free world 
um, getting angry with you um, in moments like those, you can't help but but sweat and wonder: Did I ask uh, the wrong question? Did I did I make a mistake here? Um, but uh, you know. But let me ask you: Is there a part of you where, when it happens, you know? This is going to go viral and that's going to be beneficial to whatever story I'm, I'm writing. Is there that part yeah. where you you know that in some ways with Twitter, this is going to be helpful? And I'm sure you hear from so many of your friends who are like, dude, I just saw the president <laughs> yell at you. <laughs> yeah, um, I've been surprised the number of folks who will see clips of you know my interactions with Karine Jean-Pierre or Jen Psaki before her. I think of the White House press briefing is usually pretty boring, but you know, folks out there with real jobs are, are sometimes paying attention, which um, kind of blows my mind. But um, yeah, I, I think that there is a temptation and um, to, to think, all right, well, I got a really good exchange. I got underneath their skin. And, you know, I'm going to either get a lot of plaudits or a lot of pushback online. And there was a model of journalism. Uh, there was a resistance model of journalism during the previous administration, where you had a number of correspondents, I think that all of us can probably think of a couple of examples who they definitely saw their job as getting underneath the skin of the previous president. And they invited that, they encouraged that, uh, they were um, out for blood. And I think that that made it very difficult to obtain useful information. And then it also, um, it, uh, it allowed the press to sort of stoop to uh, the lowest expectations uh, of the former president. He said, you know, the the media is is an enemy of the people. And, you know, there are a lot of conservatives who already believe that the um, legacy media and, and corporate outlets are biased and, and irredeemable. And then with some of their actions during the previous administration, they confirmed those biases. And, you know, I, I remember distinctly the moment where I realized things had changed with the, the, the transition from the two administrations. Um, you know, you would always shout questions at, at Donald Trump. And certainly the press now shouts a lot of questions at President Biden. But early on during his tenure, there was an event in the East Room. And as it wrapped up and as it was walking away with um, Vice President Kamala Harris, I was the only reporter who shouted a question. And I felt a little bit awkward. I think I shouted something about, you know, is there a crisis at the border? And none of the other reporters said anything. And there was like this, this adjustment period where, where the press sort of had to decide like, no, you know, we can be very aggressive. And, and certainly, you know, after the Afghanistan withdrawal and, and with some of these um, recent controversies, the press has gotten more aggressive. But the idea that it is the same level of intensity um, is laughable. And I think that if you are privileged enough to have this, this very great job um and and if you take your uh responsibilities seriously uh you will avoid making yourself the the story and and you should focus on you know the question itself and you should not be thinking you know how is my editor or how are news bookers or you know how are my colleagues going to be thinking about my question no you should be thinking what answer can i get to the people who don't have an opportunity to sit in these 50 blue seats every day at the White House, um, you know, what do they want to hear? That's the job. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, not to be crass, but I, I have no interest in being a, a right of center Jim Acosta.
<laughs> yeah. I, it was the rise of celebrity journalism uh, during the Trump era. Do you think that that ship can be righted or do you find that reporters are so beholden to editors, the corporate heads of the organizations they work for, that instead of going out and just being a good reporter, asking people questions, getting to the truth, they're actually having to fit a narrative more than just find out the facts? I'm curious. I mean, there's been so much stratification and realignment and, and diversification in the industry thus far. I think that um, some of the best journalism uh, for my money is coming from reporters and writers who are open about their biases. And, uh, you know, for instance, I think that Ryan Grimm at The Intercept has done phenomenal work on some of these First Amendment issues uh, when it comes to government overreach and uh, the attempts to police uh, you know, uh, misinformation. I think that, um, you know, uh, Miranda Devine at the New York Post on the, on the other end of the spectrum, um, I think that she has revealed things. Uh, my issue more often than not is when you have wires who are pretending that they have a view from nowhere and then very clearly people who are watching uh, the questions that are asked, the stories that are written, they see that, um, you know, the wires are very aggressive with with one political party and then uh, are less aggressive with the other. And, um, you know, I, I think that the New York Times is wrong when they said in 2017 that the truth matters now more than ever because, damn it, it's the truth. It's not subjective. It's objective. Get to the story. And if you have biases, if you have your own opinions, that means that you're human. But professionally, it also means you better put up your own guardrails to make certain that those biases and opinions, if you are a straight news reporter, uh, don't work their way into the story. I want to end with what it's like in the press briefings when you are asking questions of the White House press secretary. As you mentioned, it's Karine Jean-Pierre right now. The press has gotten a little bit more testy with her as of late because there are some hard issues, especially including Hunter Biden. What is really the goal when you go into those press briefings? How do you get your question answered? Tips and tricks that you've learned along the way that help you get called on? <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had some sort of secret formula. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, it is waking up in the morning and emailing uh, the press secretary's team, texting them, calling them, being as omnipresent as possible, letting them know when you're going to do a cable news hit, letting them know ahead of time that you're working on a story. Um, you know, they more often than not, what I found with, uh, you know, comms folks on the left or the right is they're not going to hold it against you if you are aggressively pursuing a story, so long as you are not surprising them. Right. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I've had shouting matches with both Republicans and Democrats. And certainly, uh, I think that the, the main difference between the current and previous administration is that Trump world was the Wild West. Uh, Biden world is much more like a well-oiled DMV, you know, they, they don't link, they leak, they, they stay on message. Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's different ways to uh, get your questions asked. Um, a lot of times for me, that just means, you know, raising my hand, uh, keeping it raised and um, making certain that, you know, whether it's Kareen or Jen, they know that I'm going to ask the most aggressive um, 
progressive question or the most aggressive conservative question that I can, but I'm always going to be fair. And to their credit, uh, I think that both Jen and Kareen have been very ecumenical um, in the way that they've worked around that, uh, that, that briefing room. I certainly don't like some of the dodges and the, the dismissals. Um, you know, I, my bias is towards more information, not less. But um, the both of them, they hustle. And I think that if you're aggressive but, uh, but polite, um, they'll still call on you. Final question for you, and it goes along with what you were just talking about. There's a dance that reporters play with the people they're interviewing that they play with the administration. There's the element of, yes, you're going to be tough, and sometimes you're going to write stories that the person you're interviewing doesn't like. What do you do to ensure they still want to talk to you in the future? Now, sometimes like a Karine Jean-Pierre, they have to speak to the press or they should speak to the press. There's that element, but maybe it's a, a more quiet individual, maybe it's a member of Congress who you would like to interview in the future. Do you let them know if it's going to be a harsh story towards them? Or what is your process like to, to, to still keep that relationship going, even if it's going to be a hard story? There have definitely been times where I've asked a tough question, or I've been pretty aggressive in an interview. And that has led to access drying up. And, and look, you know, this is their prerogative. The press secretary, yes, she exists to um, inform the American public about, you know, the president and his policies. But they have a number of reporters that they can call on in that room. You know, members of Congress, they're not under any obligation to speak to, to you specifically as a reporter. I think the best thing that you can do is... Um, be very forthright about the story that you're writing. Be very straightforward about what it is that you want to find out. And um, I like to front load things and uh, make certain that there are no surprises um, and give them every opportunity to answer a really hard question. And I, I think that, you know, in, in reporting, one of the things that you often have to do is make your incentives align with theirs. They obviously have an incentive as a politician or, or as a, a comms person to, you know, protect or to elevate or advance themselves and their own interest. And as a reporter, your interest is to get the story. And so, you know, there's many ways to, to skin a cat, but um, if the story is negative, uh, my general approach is to go to them and say, you've worked with me previously, or look at some of these other stories that I've written um, about your colleagues, uh, you know what you're going to get with me. I'm going to be uh, tough, but I'll be fair. And uh, it's in your best interest to work with me uh, because if, if you don't work with me, I'll probably still end up writing the story, uh, but you, you won't have as much of an opportunity to, uh, to get your say in there. There'll be that dreaded no comment, which I'm never a fan of. <laughs> I always encourage people to say something, even if the story is not going to be in your favor, because you might as well have something to say. But Vo Wegman, you always have something to say for a question I get asked often by people is where do I go for just straight news? Go to Phil Wegman. You can check him out on Twitter. Again, he's with Real Clear Politics. Check out his work. But Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. 
Thank you, Beverly. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, IWF wants you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That is IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all all of us here at IWF. Thanks for watching.